You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 6th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, everyone. Kara, welcome back. <laughs> Thank yes. you. From welcome. your world tour. How many continents have you been on in the last few weeks? In this trip, I only went to two continents, unless there's that weird thing about New Zealand now, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Zealandia. Zealandia. Yeah. So two um, or three, depending on if you count Zealandia. I count it, so... Yeah, so um, I, maybe I three. Two, Evan. Yep. So I went to Australia for mm-hmm. one week. I went to Melbourne and I did a talk. And yes, that's how you say it. Melbourne. It was beaten Melbourne. into me. It's Melbourne. Uh-huh. I gave a talk with Alan Duffy, who is an astrophysicist um, there. And it was a really fun talk called Beyond the Eye. And we talked about how you can't always trust your eyes. And he would talk about the physics and I would talk about the psychology and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool. Um, and then I went to Sydney and I spoke at the Australian Skeptics Conference. Um, I did a talk called Communicating Science in Post-Truth America. Um, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It, it was a hoot. Um, no, I had a, a whole lot of fun. It was really, really cool. The Australian skeptics are some of the warmest people I've ever met. It was really welcoming. While we were in Australia, yeah, it was so great. While we were there, we did some really fun stuff, too. My boyfriend came for the first um, two weeks of the trip, so it was a lot of fun to have um, kind of a pseudo-vacation while we were there. The second week, we went to New Zealand, but the New Zealand Skeptics Conference in Wellington wasn't until the end of the week, so we got to take five whole days on the South Island. Cool. Um, We didn't didn't get to go there. We didn't do that. Oh, my gosh. The South Island is the most (laughs) – yeah. Stunning place I've ever been in my life. I want okay. to die there. I have already wow. decided that it's going to happen. Wow. We can make that happen. I can you. make that happen. Yeah, ah, right? Steve. Um, <laughs> we stayed in this incredible lodge about an hour outside of Queenstown in Glenorchy. <laughs> for anybody listening who has been to New Zealand or lives in New Zealand, and it was just incredible. We took a helicopter ride, and it was like straight up Lord of the Rings. We landed on a glacier. I also got to go to Weta and do a bunch of cool tours there, which was an awful lot of fun. I mean, for me, it's that I'm really into District 9. Like, when it comes to all of the different films that Weta worked on, I think that's the one that I geek out the most about. So it was really cool seeing these, like, life-size prawn models and yeah. seeing the costuming up close and seeing the, the weaponry up close. Yeah, the people at Weta are amazing, aren't they? They're amazing. It's like... It blows my mind how much this insane prop house and and both digital and practical effects yeah. house that does everything, weaponry, costuming, modeling, all of this, feels still very, I don't know, like salt of the earth, gritty startup-y. Even though it's not, it just feels like a, a homegrown shop. Mm-hmm. It has a mom and um, pop feel to it. Absolutely. And so that was an awful lot of fun. And I just really like New Zealand. I fell in love with the place. And so that could have been a perfectly good trip. But then uh, the boyfriend came back home to work and I moved on to Asia 
I spent a few days in Hong Kong and then um, and I did a Hong Kong skeptics at the pub event. I also spoke to some school children there, which was awesome. And then I went into mainland China, spent a little bit of time there, did a Dongguan skeptics in the pub and then came back to Hong Kong before I flew home. And oh, of course I, I want to do that. It's so amazing. Bad. I want to go to Hong Kong. <laughs> I fell in love with Hong Kong. It's like New York on steroids. It's a massive city and it just never sleeps and it's super, super safe. It is a weird, weird place. And you have to get used to the fact that there is so much um, censorship. There's so much governmental control over what comes in and what comes out. Everybody's mm-hmm. on this thing called WeChat, which is like their version of social media. But I don't think what a lot of people realize is that not only is WeChat like their Facebook, it's also linked to their bank accounts and they use WeChat to pay for everything. Wow. And I also heard that they're going to start integrating policy, which is very similar to the Bryce Dallas Howard episode of Black Mirror, where people are going to get ratings like in yeah. all their everyday yeah. interactions. Oh like people so, are going to have a human rating like what's yeah your like an uber wow. it's like a recent yeah episode of curb they were joking about everybody's uber rating but well, yeah we have like credit people ratings rate. here i mean is yeah it much different but than yeah that? but not public yeah it's not going to be it's like, not public and people not, can't just yeah. see it on your social media account no yeah. you can, no yeah. i mean you yeah. think yeah. It, that's one click away like especially with augmented reality to having like you know a number of stars hang over everybody's head you know, like there's a two star individual, there's a five star individual. Oh, you know, absolutely! It's, it's creepy. I mean, it will ruin yeah. people's lives. Well, how I about think. how about that um, that Orville episode where that where they yeah, come yeah. across yes. society? It was all about likes and dislikes. That's it. That was their there. You law. go. There you go. Yeah, Black Mirror, Orville, they're all doing it. Community, community did it first. Oh, community did it first. Yeah. And also, China is <laughs> like population wise, we just don't think about it here in the US because we're just not used to that many people. Like we visited this town called Dongguan, which is like the biggest town nobody's ever heard of. There are eight million people in this one city. And it grew mid-sized city for China. In, yeah. And it grew in thirty years. Like mm-hmm. it was a farmland thirty years ago and now there's eight million people living in it. Oh damn. My daughter's college roommate is a Chinese mm-hmm. exchange student. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, she, cool! Yeah, she lives in China, and she's like, she was was telling her that one of the you know the things that she has to uh, uh, get used to is the realization of how little information she had access to in China. Oh boy! Oh, oh yeah! Oh, wow. I would love that's to interview don't her. Don't even have the access to the information; just not yeah. there. Yeah, you can't use Google. Like yeah. it's. It's bananas. So, but I think that China is getting hip to the fact that it's, it looks bad for the country when Americans visit and they feel like they're stuck behind the great firewall. So at least I use T-Mobile, which is my cell provider and T-Mobile has free data and free texting when you travel internationally in mostly developed countries. It, It also had it in China. And I was like, why am I able to get on Facebook and Instagram? And it's because it basically acts as a VPN. So I think more and more. People who come from free societies who visit China are not cut off. It's just the Chinese citizens who they're not getting their everyday lives. Full experience, yeah, Yeah. exactly. The Great great Firewall of China. Great Firewall. Yeah. Well, welcome back, Kara. Thank you. And you get to start us off with a "What's the word?" Ooh, this one's fun to say. (laughs) Let's dive into Digitigrade. Mm -hmm. Say it with me. Digitigrade. 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 Isn't it fun to say? Yeah. Digitigrade. Okay. That sounds like me trying to pronounce the word degenerate. 
Didgeridoo. Or didgeridoo. Yeah, it does sound a little like didgeridoo. Didgeridoo. Okay. So I was inspired to do this word by a recent Talk Nerdy episode that I recorded. I did the narration for a new series on Smithsonian Earth called The Secret World of Animal Sleep. And I interviewed the illustrator and graphic artist who did all of the beautiful illustration for the piece on Talk Nerdy. Her name's Orly Beatley. And she is uh, trained as a science illustrator. And so it's all these different animal characters. And the way she did them is she would watercolor and draw them and then scan them in and use this animation software where she would basically pick all of their joint points and then marionette them digitally. So they have this cool puppeteering kind of cutout vibe to them. And when she was telling me all about it, she would be like, well, the digitigrades do this and the plantigrades do that and the ungulagrades do this. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? So um, this is one of those words that I came across recently in real life. And I was like, I have to bring this onto the SGU. So let's start with digitigrades. Digitigrades are animals that walk on their toes or their fingers, oh. like a dog, a cat or a bird. Horse. No. no, we'll get there. Digitigrade. Plantigrade is an animal that walks on the soles of its feet, like a human, other primates, bears, rodents, and marsupials. The plantar portion. Yeah. yeah. And then Bob, ungulagrades are animals that walk on their hooves, like horses, deers, cows, rhinos, and camels. But you did make a good point, Bob. Yeah, and pan. It's important to note that from an anatomical perspective, digitigrades and ungulagrades are more similar to each other than to plantigrades. So in both digitigrades, which walk on their toes, let's remember, and ungulagrades, which walk on their hooves, the bones in their feet and legs are specialized. And what we usually think of as a knee is actually their ankle. Sometimes they do have a knee also. Um, so this is especially true for birds. So you know how it looks like birds are wa- walking on flat feet and then they have this weird backward knee? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's actually their ankle and they're walking on their toes. Definitely so you've got to remember, so. oh, yeah, wow. that the bones in their feet are elongated and move backwards. So if you look at a picture of a skeleton of a horse or if you look at a picture of a skeleton of a dog or a cat, you'll see that there's this bone, this angled bone that pops out and it's not where their feet rest on the ground. It's actually like their ankle because what we think of as their feet is actually just their toes. Like a paw is just a dog's toes. Its foot goes all the way back to the joint that sits on the floor when they do a play bow. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's so weird. Yeah. So just when it's really easy to notice when you actually look at a skeleton of these animals, but you never thought about it before, right? Unless you took comparative anatomy classes. But of course, this is really important for an artist who is drawing or trying to animate different animals. You probably... You know, when you heard me say ungulagrade, thought of ungulates, but don't confuse the terms. Ungulates really is a broader distinction for that particular class of animal because not all ungulates walk. So not all ungulates are ungulagrades because ungulagrade refers to how they walk. They walk on hooves. But ungulates, did you know this, include the cetaceans, the dolphins and the whales. Yeah, because they evolved from a common ancestor to hooved animals. Yeah, if if you do cladistics, yes. Yeah. So hmm. the taxonomy has been really blurred by recent genetic analysis. So, you know, used to be ungulate just described animals that had hooves. So, of course, ungulagrade and ungulate in the past would have been almost synonymous. If you have a hoof, you walk on a hoof. But no, some of these animals don't actually have hooves and they don't walk on them. Um, some of them swim. <laughs> 
So keep that in mind. Um, so let's actually break down what the words are. I think at this point, most people have filled that in. But just to be extra clear, they all have Latin roots. They all have a shared suffix, grade. And grade refers to walking or stepping. That's why when we talk about grading things, like grading papers or grading depths or grading heights, oh, cool. we're literally referring to the process of measuring with steps. That's where that comes from. Yeah. Uh-huh. Super cool. Um, each of the prefixes of the words describes how the animal stands or walks. So a digitigrade walks on its digits, meaning its fingers or its toes. So a tardigrade walks on tar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> tardigrade is a slow walker. Something really interesting, though. So digitigrade, they walk on their digits. Of course, we've all heard the word digit for fingers and toes. Did you know that's where the n- numerical term digit comes from, too? Oh, digits oh, are actual. Think about that. They're numbers people counted on their fingers. That's legit where that word came from. It's embodied cognition. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Plant or plantar, which you're probably more used to hearing it from plantigrade, refers to the sole of the foot, like in plantar warts or plantar fasciitis. And then the prefix of unguligrade means hoof. So that makes sense. And it actually has roots in the Latin word for nail. So it ungulate directly or ungula directly translates to hoof, but an earlier usage of the Latin form means nail. That's why our fingers are called phalanges, but our fingernails are called ungule phalanges. They are? Yeah. You've never heard that term? No. No. Wow, you made a nice connection there, Karen. Many, many connections. So hopefully breaking it down in that way, we'll all remember the words and we'll use them when we want to be pedantic. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> uh, it is such a weird word right like when are you going to use the word digitigrade but now that you know it i feel like you have to throw it into regular sure. conversation all the time <laughs> all the time <laughs> thanks Kara. yep jay tell us about littlefoot is he related at all to littlefinger from uh, Game like of from the land with the land no, it's time? Bigfoot's baby baby daughter. Oh, that's what I uh, first thought when I heard of this one. No, this uh, scientists have found um, one of the best fossil examples of a human ancestor, and they named it Littlefoot. So that's that's the name. This it's is cute. one uh, that was found in South Africa, and it's one of the most complete and old humanoid fossils ever found. Hmm. Very very cool stuff, man. So the research team who found it, they spent over twenty years. 20 years, you heard me correctly, digging up this specific fossil. Wow. Cleaning up the bones and then assembling them. So this, you know, this is awesome. And the thing that I realized when you read stuff like this, you're like, wow, there are people that like to stand there and mix chemicals all day. There are people that (laughs) like to dig up little bone fragments all day for 20 years. I mean, I I can't do that. Oh my gosh. Thank you for doing it because we get these awesome discoveries. But my God, that sounds difficult. So Littlefoot was discovered in the Sturkenfontein. I had to, I added a yes. A Sturkfontein. <laughs> Sturkfontein. Okay, I'm Sturk very excited. That's like that sounds very South African, Jack. They were found in these caves that are are northwest of South Africa's main city of Johannesburg, and sadly, the scientists think that Littlefoot was a young girl who fell down into one of the caves into the shafts. Oh, no. So that's that's why she was there. Luckily for us, though, that made it so the bones survived and that we have this amazingly complete fossil. The, you know, they, of course, can't date the fossil exactly, but the scientists are saying it's about 3.67 million years old, and that makes it about 500,000 years older than the famous fossil, Lucy, oh that was found in Ethiopia. Yeah, but Jay, just to clarify, they, they dated the gravel that it was embedded in, not the bones themselves. 
and there is some researchers think that um if you know she might have fallen into older sediment so the the dating is is a little questionable because it's indirect but but mm. that the it's probably you know the consensus is that she probably dates to that that time well wow, that's cool so they they're actually are smart enough to know that the gravel that she fell into could be older than than her you know, yeah. the gravel layer. Yeah. All right. That's good. Well, you know, and this is the beginning. You know, I'm sure they're doing a lot more study on that. Yeah. I mean, when you Google this and you know how like Google auto populates with the Wikipedia box on the right side that gives you like mm-hmm. fast facts mm-hmm. under yep. species, it just says Southern ape. That's yeah. still contested it's so too. new. Yeah. Like it's so interesting. Yeah. You know, funny that you say that because I was just about to say that the fossil belongs to the genus Australopithecus. And they're saying that the fossil is actually a different species. Mm. So to explain this a bit, a species is defined as the largest group of organisms that can interbreed to produce a fertile offspring, right? So if you belong to the same species, you can have fertile kids. So animals that belong to the same species tend to look a lot alike, and they they have the same number of chromosomes, and you know, unless they're dogs, you know, they, shows you how fuzzy the species definition is. And then, because is it can they interbreed or are they actually interbreeding? Yeah, and, you know, it, it's it's definitely fuzzy around the edges, which is why the the species of this specimen is also contested. The g- genus is definitely Australopithecus. It seems like it's probably an Africanus. But not everyone buys that yet. Some are advocating for it uh, to be a new species, Prometheus, Australopithecus Ooh, Prometheus. That's cool. But I, I uh, hate and love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Agreed, Bob. Agreed. <laughs> so to 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 clarify too, because this is you know information that a lot of people just don't have rattling around in their head like Steve. <laughs> so the a genus can have many species under it, right? Yeah, it's right. one click above on the on the the chart. Taxonomy, use, yeah. You know, the the mm-hmm. taxonomy chart. So the best examples of of this, say, is a donkey and a horse, right? So they they belong to the genus Equus, I believe. Equus, yeah, Equus. Yeah. Equus. Um, Equus. So they're different species. A donkey and a horse are different species, but they're underneath the same genus. And, you know, for example, if a donkey and a horse have uh, offspring... Um, it's a mule, and mules are not fertile. So the scientists are, are thinking that this shows the fact that you know we're we're talking about the debate that's going on. But but if if Littlefoot is a different species, then the scientists are saying if that's true, then human ancestors seem to be more spread out in a larger area in Africa than was previously thought, and that there would be more more diversity among the number of species, which, you know, if you yeah. think about it, it, opens a door to like, well, it's not just these guys. It could have been these guys and a lot of other, you know, species that are, were roaming around there, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. But that's also probably generically true. I think it's a good bet to say that any of our ancestors were existed for longer over a greater range and with more d- diversity than we currently know. That's probably true of every single a part of our of our evolutionary past. So the science here is still out, meaning that they have a lot more research to do. But I did read a couple of things I thought were were interesting. The mechanics of what the researchers did. So the team, the this research team was led by Professor Ron Clark, and he described how difficult it was to find all of the bones and carefully extract them from the cave. So check this out. First, the bones were really fragile, like really fragile. Mm-hmm. And they were buried in a concrete-like material. So the scientists had to have extraordinary patience and precision to get the bones free. They said they were using needles to scratch, you know, scratch away this concrete-like stone to reveal the bone. 
That's why it took 20 years. So they had to find all the pieces, all the bone fragments that they could by by sifting through this concrete-like rock. And when they did find one, boy, they were hands and knees, like scratching away until they got to the part where like, okay, that's bone, that's not. Crazy, crazy uh, detailed work that these guys did. And once the skeleton was fully assembled... The, this is the the wonderful thing. After 20 years of these, this group doing this, she was obviously more like a human than an ape, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool. So, and then another thing that one of the scientists said was that they think that she, by the, you know, they they could study the bones and and extract information just by the 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 shape of the body, but they think that they slept in trees. That this species yeah. slept in trees, mm, which cool. I I like that idea, right, Kara? That it's a more human-like ancestor that still slept in trees. Mm-hmm. I just find that arboreal stuff cool. It's more human than any extant ape, and more ape-like than any human. It's a wonderful transitional fossil. Yeah, because I feel like we have this idea in our heads sometimes that like there's proto-humans who slept in trees and were super ape-like and were really, really tiny and like all the things that we think of as being like not quite human. And then all of a sudden there were humans. But like all those transitions did not happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't jump out of the of trees, course. stand up over the tall grass, and there you go, humans. Walking. Yeah. Like you're going to see these. And sometimes things might have happened before other things happened and we're going to be surprised every yeah, yeah. time we find this fossil evidence. And it's bushy. They, they weren't evolving towards mm-hmm. humans. They were just evolving in a bunch of different directions one of which ultimately led to humans so we, yeah That's we're right. still we're still at the point where every time we find a really good new specimen it's 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 adding complexity to the story you know yeah and it adds one more gap right, yeah. <laughs> another gap <laughs> but yeah beautiful beautiful specimen though i mean again you think it's 90 percent complete but that means that you know you only you literally only need 50 percent of a skeleton and right because you could we have bilateral symmetry. If you had exactly mm-hmm. one side, exactly one theoretically, inside. you could have a whole specimen from 50%. But this was 90% of the bones, which means we pretty much got it all, you know, by, you know, we, we know every piece of the anatomy pretty much with the skeleton and, and a skull, which is, you know, hugely important when we're trying to place human ancestors. So wonderful, wonderful specimen. Look at some of the pictures so you can get a sense of how complete it is. And, and it just, it's a very interesting looking fossil. I think it's worth a look. All right. Thanks, Jay. Bob, what was going on before the Big Bang? Ooh, maybe, much, maybe right? we'll find out someday. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Steve, Steve is talking about uh, a physicist who has modified, apparently, an obscure theory about black holes to show that perhaps the Big Bang didn't start with a singularity, and that could lead to a universe that bounces and possibly also leaves remnants of previous incarnations uh which is what steve was referring to which i think is the Mm -hmm. coolest part of this whole this whole bit of speculation so this is from a recent paper by a brazilian physicist uh juliano caesar silva nevis uh, who is a researcher at the university of campinas in brazil in that paper he makes the argument that that perhaps the big bang singularity may not have ever existed which is actually an exciting idea and of course this is probably a, a long shot but like i said there's a couple things i really like about this that he's trying to deal with these singularities these very irksome singularities in, in a creative way and he's proposing that uh, that there may actually be some physical evidence to support his theory which is always great for for things that are usually just pure theory uh, anyway 
So now we've talked about singularities before, right? They're very cool, but they're very nasty. These are points of apparent infinite density that that our current physics just falls apart when it when it tries to describe it. It just can't. It just can't describe it. So uh, and these are found in only two places only, right? Black holes have singularities, and and the theorized singularity right before the Big Bang. Those are those are the two places where you see this type of cosmological singularity. Now keep in mind, I want to say that this idea doesn't not it doesn't doubt the Big Bang itself. That would be just very incredible silly, wouldn't it? There's just way too much evidence. Clearly, and when you look at it very broadly, the the early universe was definitely had to be hot and dense, and it's been cooling and expanding ever since. I mean, you basically that's essentially the Big Bang, and you can't really discount that. That would be that would be ridiculous. But the singularity itself, though, right before the Big Bang, doesn't really have any direct evidence to support its existence, though. So doing away with it isn't as as, as egregious as you as you may think. This is what Nevis did, though. He took an idea. Called Called the regular black hole, which I, I guess I had never heard of. Have you guys ever heard of a regular black hole? As opposed to an irregular one? Right. Well, this came from physicist James Bardeen in 1968. And he essentially mathematically described a regular black hole in which the mass behind the event horizon varied depending on its distance from the center. People describe it as a mathematical trick, but it does, you know, mathematically do away with the singularity in this regular black hole, um, at least according to Bardeen and now Nevis. So what Nevis did was to apply that, that math to the cosmological singularity 13.8 billion years ago to do away with that singularity. And apparently, once you remove that cosmological singularity using this this mathematical trick, Nevis believes that you can then reintroduce this idea of a bouncing universe that's been around for probably a century, right? I mean, people have been talking about this bouncing universe in which the universe collapses and then and then just bounces off of itself and creates a, another iteration, another cycle. The other really interesting wrinkle that really caught my attention with all this that he that he specifically adds is that there could somehow be traces from the previous universe that might still exist today. Some examples I heard uh, listed were perhaps gravitational waves that we detect in the future when we have a uh, even you know even better instrument instrumentation than we do now. You know, I, I guess I'm not sure exactly what the nature of those gravitational waves would be, but apparently there would be something distinctive about them that would say, "Hey, this happened. This happened in a previous universe." Or I think they mentioned something about some specific types of black holes that that could be actual remnants from a previous uh, universe, a previous incarnation of our universe, which, which of course is incredibly exciting and appealing, but. Keep in mind, though, this is all just real, just speculation at this point. Um, I think he's going to need some real dramatic evidence to to remove this from from what people consider to be f- these fringe theories. And I mean, there are certain things specifically that I that I have problems with. I mean, how could you have a, a cyclic, bouncing universe when our current expansion of our universe that's not going anywhere except faster and faster, right? Especially with dark energy prodding it along, making it go even faster and faster. How are we going to have another bounce, or or is that the last bounce. I mean, so that seems, I, I just don't understand how that would follow unless he has some ideas on how we could eventually, you know, s- slow down and and start collapsing. I don't think that's going to happen. And then his, this whole idea about regular black holes, Steve, doesn't that sound pretty dicey to you? I mean, how could you, how could you have mass varying within an, an event horizon? I mean, if you have enough mass to form a black hole, mass 
that's that's greater than what's required for a white dwarf, greater than what's required for a neutron star. You're going to neutron degeneracy, you know, degeneracy pressure mm-hmm. is going to say you need to collapse. You need to continue collapsing and nothing is going to stop you, right? Because you have electron degeneracy pressure, which the electrons and Pauli exclusion and all that pre- prevents them of white dwarf from getting any more squished, right? Because you have a certain amount of mass and the electrons say, no, you're not going any farther. And then, but if you have more mass than that, then the neutron degeneracy pressure kicks in and says, all right, you could form a neutron star, but you don't have enough mass to squeeze to squeeze that even even more. But if you have enough mass to create a black hole, there's no there's no pressure that's going to prevent you from just collapsing forever, right? That's the whole idea behind the singularity. Even the idea that there's some theories about quark degeneracy pressure, but uh, but that that I mean that's something that may be between a neutron star and a black hole. So I don't know if his theory or his math can explain, you know, what kind of pressure can keep the mass of a black hole separated. What's preventing it from collapsing to to a singularity? That's the the basic point right there. So I don't know. So, but still, this is interesting. And I'll end with a with a very good quote from the Science Alert site who, who described this well. They said that still anything that solves the singularity problem deserves investigating. Nevis's work is just one of a number of possible solutions that swaps around assumptions to eliminate the need for physics-breaking impossibilities. And that says a lot there, because if all they're really doing is switch is swapping around assumptions, and you're gonna ha- you're gonna always need some some sort of assumptions that you're that you can't get rid of. And if you could swap around some of your assumptions in a way that that doesn't break so that the physics doesn't break hey that's fine you know that's that that's that's a better theory i think um so who knows maybe this will pan out and do away with um singularities or one of these other other ways uh, these other theories will will do it but hopefully i just want we just want to get rid of them because our our physics can't describe it currently and who knows maybe you know they'll come up with quantum gravity and then they'll be able to deal with it but we're not you know we're not there yet all right. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about how much of our concept of cosmology is just math, right? Oh, and my just, God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. This next one's a little bit, a little interesting. I, I wrote about this on Neurologica earlier in the week. So this is another study looking at the reasons that people deny science. Uh, I've been following this research over the last really 10, 15 years, and our knowledge about science denial is getting I think more, uh, more nuanced. Go back in time 20 years. We thought, yeah, sure. You know, the prevailing idea at the time was that, you know, people deny science or believe pseudoscience because they don't understand real science, right? That it was a scientific literacy issue primarily. Although we knew that people had motivated reasoning for their ideology as well. But, you know, our main approach to treating it to, to, um, countering Science denial was in, was science education. And now, you know, in the last really 20, 10, 20 years of psychological research, we've discovered all sorts of things about the Dunning-Kruger effect and motivated reasoning and the backlash effect. But our, you know, the, the research is actually getting more and more nuanced. So there was a recent study looking at several different types of science denial and different factors that may correlate with them. This is a purely correlational study, so it doesn't, didn't really test cause and effect, but you can, can make some reasonable inferences from these correlations. So the, the three main belief, beliefs or science denials that they looked at, one was vaccine denial or vaccine refusal. 
the uh, the second was global warming denial, and the third was the belief that uh, genetically modified foods are unsafe or bad for the environment, basically anti-GMO sentimentality. They, they correlated them with several things. One was uh, political ideology. Uh, they correlated it with religiosity, just basically how religious are you, uh, with moral purity. So it's, these are just standardized psychological tests. So this is a personality feature, you know, the, a desire for moral purity. And then they also looked at support for science, faith in science, which are two different things, right? Faith in science is do you believe the outcomes of science and support for science is how much money do you think the government should be spending on scientific research? And then finally, scientific literacy. Uh, let me ask you, I don't know if you guys read it or not, but let me ask you what you think about this. So for global warming denial, what do you think was the most predictive correlation? What, what other feature correlated most with denying the scientific consensus behind global warming? Being anti-government. Politics. Political ideology. Yeah, yeah it was, that it was, makes sense. It was straight up. That was the only one. Oh, wow. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> damning. Was, that damning. explained pretty much all of the variance, right? In, in, put it Yikes. in scientific parlance. So, which, yeah, kind of makes sense because it's not global warming denialism is not like a convergent phenomenon. Mm-hmm. This is something that's like very politically driven. It's agenda yeah. driven. It's economically spe- driven. Definitely. Yeah. Well, there's a specific movement with specific architects. It's not like just a bunch of people on their own came up with the idea that global yeah. warming is a hoax. It is a political movement, global yeah. warming now. But it also means, you know, or at least it implies that that scientific literacy is not a factor and that therefore, you know, scientific outreach, just explaining the science to people won't would help. not help people. Won't help. Yeah, but we've kind of known that for a long time that the deficit deficit model doesn't usually work. Fits my well, not for not for global warming denial. That fits my anecdotal experience. You know, Mm -hmm. being in the trenches with these various issues, that um, a lot of people who will actually get into an argument with me over global warming, they don't have a deficit of facts. It's just how they interpret them uh, that matters. All right, what about uh, anti-GMO sentiments? Uh, mm, that's suck, not they political. They suck at science. It's not political. Um, what were, not political. Yeah, what were the other ones? Can you go through the So religiosity, again? moral purity, support for science, faith in science, and scientific literacy. It's got to be scientific literacy. I think it's literacy. faith in science. Yeah, so it was actually religiosity correlated really? to some extent. Moral purity, though, was the big one. Yeah, I could see that being And big scientific yeah. literacy. Yeah, so that indicates that education could actually make some progress with anti-GMO yeah. sentimentality. And that also fits my anecdotal experience and prior studies. Yeah, the, that me too. I feel like I've known people whose I've seen their minds change yeah. when they watch documentaries or when we had long, intense discussions. But I've never changed the mind of a global warming denial. Yeah, so mm. exactly. When I talk with people who are really anti-GMO, their anti-GMO sentiments, to be, you know, just to be perfectly honest, this is my experience, are built entirely on misinformation, blatant, easily refutable misinformation. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or their anti-GMO sentiment is not really an anti-GMO sentiment. Right. It's an anti- um, Corporatism. You know, corporate food. Or, yeah, yeah, food exactly. or whatever. Things that actually are, yep. are tangential to the GM issue. Right. So it's yeah. built on that level of propaganda and also just misunderstanding about the science. And mm-hmm. so they, they are – you can bring some people around 
by just giving them information like, nope, actually Monsanto actually never has sued anybody because of accidental contamination. Nope, Indian farmers are not committing suicide because of their failure of their GMO crops. And then they say, oh, yeah. Those things are just wrong. Well, they don't just immediately come over. They push back, but you have to stick with it No, but then they look it up themselves. Yeah, and I tell them, yeah, don't trust me. Really, look it up. It's, It's all there. Yeah, that's it's very why, easy to find. You know, there are multiple journalists who started out in the anti-GMO camp, and then they, when they tried mm-hmm. to do significant research, they're like, "Oh my God, this is all built on sand. This is just nothing." Um, and fortunately, it took journalism journalism skills. Yeah, to actually, yeah, it did. It, yeah, to, to actually convince them something skills that most people don't have. You know, right, just not. But the, the other thing is the moral purity angle, and that is the I think appeal to nature. The mm-hmm. I don't want toxins or it's unnatural. The disgust yes. thing, you know that. Well, and yeah. like the whole like I want to like take care of my kids yeah. and make sure that they're clean really eating. Healthy. Yeah, clean eating is very moral purity kind of thing, and that also yeah. is that interesting idea, which again other research has shown, is that our Moral purity I, sensibilities get all entangled with physical purity, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like essence we, of purity. No, it's true. Yeah, be a purity of essence. Uh, purity of essence. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Like you, you, you think that's why you know um, people speculate. Psychologists, you know, feel that sometimes people get physically disgusted over things like homosexuality because they mm-hmm. that triggers a moral purity you know reaction because of their upbringing wow. or their religious beliefs or whatever and that that gets entangled with a physical you know disgust reaction these are happening in the same part of the brain you know physical yeah. and emotional or moral disgust are all basically the same phenomenon it's interesting damn, damn um, brain. And then, it's also interesting that sometimes they're, those penile machines show that yeah. they're actually having a positive reaction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, and then uh, vaccine, <laughs> vaccine refusal or anti-vaccine sentiments. Mm, probably also moral purity. Yeah, moral and purity. And I still think and trust apolitical. in science. Yeah. Trust in science. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it's not it's political. Faith. It's not political. Yeah, it's yeah. not political. That I knew. I think we yeah, tend – that's kind of a, a misunderstanding that when, when I give talks about psychom and about pseudoscience and stuff, I usually mention that there are just as many people on the right who are anti-vax. I think we tend to think mm-hmm. of it as a political thing, but it's really not. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't see. There's the conspiracy theory component to, exactly. to all of this. You hit on it. That, is a, that was a glaring lacoon in this mm-hmm. study is they didn't ask about or measure conspiracy thinking um, other studies have done that, and what they find is that people – some people are opportunist conspiracy theorists. They basically use the conspiracy theory in order to support their anti-science views, which they hold for other reasons. But then there are the all-purpose conspiracy theorists where the conspiracy is the thing. They are conspiracy theorists first. And there are conspiracy theorists about everything. Right. And so that wasn't even evaluated in this particular study. And that's sort of the other layer here is the meta layer about, mm-hmm. yeah, we're talking about what individual things correlated with specific beliefs. And it's important to realize that not all beliefs are the same. You have to look at yeah. each belief as a, a psychological and a cultural phenomenon unto itself. But then also all of these things are interacting with each other. For example, a religious orthodoxy predicted lack of faith in science and lack of support for science. 
right? So yeah. are those they're, they're not these are not independent variables. They're interacting variables, and they're mm-hmm. interacting in complicated ways. And yeah, those two especially probably share a lot of variants. Well, yeah, that's also, yeah, that's a, an easy example there. I think I was also kind of misconstruing lack of faith in science with lack of faith in authority. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's another one that they glaringly left out because science, it does not equate authority. And I think a lot of that conspiratorial stuff comes into that parameter. Yeah. And the conspiratorial stuff also gets tied up in lack of faith in government versus mm-hmm. corporations, yeah. right? Which is very ideological yep. mm. too, right? Yep. And so political ideology captures some of this, but not all of it. It's fascinating. But again, so there's th- these factors are all interacting and then there's some they didn't measure, which are also interacting. One way also that I, I tend to put this sort of thing together is to think of it in terms of the underlying narrative or narratives that people are using to understand the world or to create their world view. And mm-hmm. that narrative has different elements to it. It could have an element of moral purity or an element of religiosity or of, of political tribalism or of their attitude towards science, whatever. These are all tied together. You know, the narratives can take a, take on a life of their own. You know, they can have a, have a cultural momentum. They could actually have institutions behind them, right? Marketing behind them, memes, etc. And so that I think you have to understand things as as from a narrative perspective as well. And in fact, we did talk about a recent study, Kara, I don't remember if you were here this week or not. I don't think so, where it showed that if you're trying to take away someone's narrative, you can't just do it with facts. You have to give them a different narrative mm-hmm. that has equal explanatory power for them. Yeah. So you can't just say, yeah, though, no, global warming is wrong. You have to say, and this is how we could make sense of all this information. Here's an alternative narrative that will help you Absolutely. understand everything, which is where the skeptical narrative comes in. When I talk about the deficit model, you know, and, and- and you were saying, yeah, not with this particular type of anti-science, but with this other one. I think it's because when I think of the deficit model, I think of the idea that like we historically in SciComm thought that literally people's heads like had so much room in them and they were only partway full. And then if we just (laughs) added more stuff and then their heads could be more full, they would know more. But the truth is their heads are already full of their own narrative. Right. They think they know all the stuff. They've filled in the blanks themselves. Exactly. <laughs> That's the Dunning-Kruger thing. And Dunning said that, and we talked about this on the show, is that an ignorant mind is not an empty mind. It yes, is exactly, exactly the opposite of an empty mind. It is full of things that give you the illusion of knowledge, mm-hmm. confirmation bias, pattern recognition, all these sorts of things. The narratives, right? And then the narratives support yeah. themselves because they're, the narratives not only help you make sense of the world, but they also then filter your perception of the world and they bias your interpretation of the filtered information that you Absolutely. then get. And then forget about the echo chamber is just that on steroids, right? I know. <laughs> yeah. Now it's Submerge like you don't ever yourself. have to leave your own narrative. Yeah. This is why you can't convince most people you know that are dyed in the wool that you know they're wrong and you're right, right. in one conversation i mean you had no, this is why yeah. we keep saying you have to take baby steps Plant and the seed you know spoon feed them right. information and, and try not to get in their face because it yeah. we've 
we've done this for so long, and right. we, it just doesn't work. Jay, some some fossils take twenty years to unearth. It, <laughs> exactly. Some things are it's, a very long process. Well, and it's also why there are some people you're you're not going to change their minds. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing that you have to remember. I think sometimes science communicators and skeptics are so obsessed with the idea of changing hearts and minds of people who have their heels dug in when we should be focusing on the people who are on the fence. Well, we yeah, po- and we do, and we've been saying that for decades. That yeah, we're yeah. going for the fence sitters where we're trying to inform people who already are sort of down with the science or skeptical narrative but they just need more information and occasionally if somebody comes over from the side great but we're not going to spend our effort doing that at the same time Kara I'm not willing to give up on them and I think the fact that we have made so much progress in teasing all this apart and understanding how people form their died in the world beliefs I'm not willing to give up I think that we may get to the point where we may have some approaches that maybe get us a little bit of the way that that might get us to five or ten percent or whatever. I have some kind of return on the investment there, so we'll see. I don't know, and I think I, I, th- I do think one big solid lesson here, and, and yes, this is my bias because this reinforces what we've been doing for twenty years, is that it really promotes this notion that we have to sell the scientific skepticism narrative not just give information we have to get people to mm-hmm. want to be right to want to be skeptical to doubt things and to to really evaluate their own beliefs if only there were a book coming out soon yeah that, that ties all this <laughs> together, <laughs> all together. Like guide if yeah only, like gosh. a guide mm. to yeah. like Some, maybe the universe yeah, a skeptical guide mm. to the universe steve, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. steve change change whatever in, in post-production change what i'm about to say to a higher frequency that you can't you can't recognize skeptics <laughs> are cool. Skeptics are awesome. Do some liminal? Critical, is that the approach? Thinking rocks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Back to the 1970s right, that that with the works. naked women in the Coca-Cola bubbles. But don't forget the spinning works. The, the spinning, the spiral disc <laughs> yeah. spinning around. Yeah, yeah, I wish. I really do wish that yelling at people worked. <laughs> if volume equaled uh, results, yeah. Yeah. Because right. I really thought for like the first five years of my skepticism, I thought like, man, I was doing it. You know, I walked away from so many nights where I'm like, man, I, I changed their minds. You know, little did I know, basically half of the town I lived in thought I was an a-hole. You know, like, what did the other it, half think? I know, right? Half? They already thought that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's, that's the thing. Like, you, you, get the, you get this humility after you try so many times. Yeah, and you yeah. finally are like, all right, this is not working. Change course. Yeah, just, you, you just change your course. Right. But, and we're... The, Luckily, the researchers are doing the research, and you know we have much, so much more information than we did twenty years ago. And oh, really, easily. that's oh, the yeah. bright spot that I want to emphasize with all of this. Yes, it, the problem is bigger and hornier, not horn, thornier. Barrier <laughs> and, and thornier. The problem is much thornier than we thought, but we are getting we're being given more tools all the time. So let's not. Wouldn't give up. you love? To get to be able to reach back to Carl Sagan and say, Carl, let me tell you like what we found out. Yeah. And like to Love see it. those moments of discovery on him. Oh, yeah. He would be like, oh, I, my God. You know, that would be such a cool thing to see. Experience. It is funny. He's such an icon of the movement, yet he died before Dunning Kruger, before yeah. any of this. You know, yeah. we really, and you, when you read Demon Haunted World, which is still a great read and still relevant but it is dated and the but that being yep. dated is a good thing because that means yeah. we've progressed if it weren't dated that would be like well, what we've been doing for the last 20 years you know yeah, yeah. so yeah, th- you know point. our own book we had to update things in the book just from something we wrote six or seven months ago. yeah 
I'm still doing it. I'm doing the final edit and I'm still like squeezing things in that were (laughs) just published. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. All right, let's move on. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Plus. Steve, they have unlimited, if you buy a subscription to The Great Courses Plus, you will have unlimited access, unlimited to brilliant, engaging professors. 8,500 lectures, Steve. That's impressive. Covers more than just science, though, Jay. Also history, economics, philosophy, cooking, whatever you want. Well, you know which one I've been watching lately is The Science of Flight. It's really cool, and I'm learning a lot because I knew nothing about it before. It dives deep not just into the science that allows for flight, but also all of the work on aviation exploration of the future of flight. So it takes kind of the the early science and combines it with where we are going. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this course too. I now understand what the angle of attack is. Aha, of course you do. Very helpful. And we want SGU listeners to experience the great courses plus as well. Right now, they're giving our listeners an entire month of unlimited free access to all their lectures, but you need to go to our special URL. So sign up now, guys. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's the Great Courses Plus, P-L-U-S, dot com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Kara, what happens to me if I stick my head in an, in an active particle accelerator? <laughs> <laughs> this is a, uh, a uh, public service announcement. Yeah, This is right? your head in a particle accelerator. <laughs> I love that this is a question that people have thought to ask, and it's actually happened to one dude. So <laughs> oh my we gosh. actually know the answer to this question. And the interesting thing about this is that this is not a new story. This happened in 1978, but it's making the rounds again because Nathaniel Sharping, Sharping, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Nathaniel, but I read your work all the time. Um he does a, a Discover blog, uh, wrote about it just like two days ago. And it actually links out to a Wired article that was written like 10 years ago <laughs> that has a lot of the same info, but it's still and will always be relevant as long as there are particle accelerators. So dude's name was Anatoly Bugorsky. He was Russian, um, working on at the Institute for High Energy Physics in a town in Russia called, um, let me see, Protvino. That's a, my terrible Russian accent. He's 36 years old. A researcher there had not finished his PhD yet, stuck his head in the, in the particle accelerator. I'm going to say on accident. Details are probably an experiment. Seems like what was happening was something was broken, and he leaned in to like look at something or just something. That doesn't look not right. realizing, Ow. yeah, that it was on, and so a burst of protons went through the back of his head, exited by his nose. Oh my gosh, Jesus, man, what the hell? First of all, he said he didn't feel it, no pain, um, but mm-hmm. the uh, flash of light was quote brighter than a thousand suns. Oh. So let's talk about the dose of radiation that he got. 2000 gray, which if you've never heard that unit, I hadn't, which is one joule of radiation energy per kilogram of matter. And if that means nothing to you, 2000 gray is the same as 200,000 rads. That's probably the the unit that you've heard before. Yeah. Yeah. So we got 2000 gray to his gray matter? Yeah, there you go. Kara, can you you compare that to like flying – Six hours in an airplane? Or just an x-ray or something. Oh, I'm not sure, actually. We should look up how many rads. I can tell you that 500 to 600 rads is enough to kill a person. Five gray can be lethal. 
Five gray. Five. Yeah, yeah five got, gray, which is 500 rads, uh, can be lethal. I don't know how much you get in a single x-ray, um, but obviously if you get less enough x-rays to kill you, then you're probably getting collectively 500 rads. Um, and oh, also keep in mind, it was 200,000 rads where it entered, but it was actually 300,000 rads when it left How's his head. Possible? Because apparently it like collides with all the protons and and crap that's already in your head oh my gosh it probably it, scrambled yeah. his brain oh. he yeah had, he had protons in his head already <laughs> what <laughs> and so, so, so i know pretty crazy no, no so he lived he even lived to finish his phd he is oh. i think he is a russian scientist he's still alive he's 75 years old so he's he's the modern day phineas gage he is the modern day phineas yeah gage. that's cool. does he have right. superpowers Bruce yeah. Banner. Kind of. He sticks his head. No, he gets no superpowers. But what uh-huh. did happen was, uh-huh. A, his face was destroyed. What? Like his skin um, uh-huh. basically burned and oh um, like sloughed off all uh-huh. around where the where the beam entered and exited. Whoa. He, it, it actually blistered and like ballooned, they said. It was really big when they took him to the hospital. That passed. He lost hearing in his left ear and eventually he lived, I think, the rest of his life or is living the rest of his life with a bit of tinnitus from that. The left side of his face is paralyzed, but he did not have any intellectual changes or at least none that were noticeable. He did say that he got more tired and he um, ev- he at first started with a bunch of pettit mal seizures, but over the course he has had something like six or seven grand mal seizures, which of course each individually could potentially be lethal. But not only did he live to tell the tale, he also like finished his PhD which is amazing. They all thought he was going to die. They yeah. took him to the clinic in Moscow, thought he was going to die. He lived, um, continued to live, continued to do work. I read somewhere that he wants to like come to the U.S. so people can study him, but he's like stuck in this small town in Russia. So maybe we can start a Kickstarter or something. Okay, and then the really interesting thing is the more I dug into this, the more I learned about a cancer therapy called proton therapy. So did you guys know that some people actually will get like a particle accelerator mm-hmm. beamed into their body to help fight their cancer? Very yeah. targeted. It's targeted proton therapy and it actually uses a cyclotron. So it's oh, like cool. they take the hydrogen, they pull it off of the water molecules. It comes up to speed and the cyclotron moves down the tube just like a particle accelerator, a vacuum tube. And then there's this big thing called a gantry that's built around the person to help them target that proton beam so that it specifically hits their cancer. It's incredibly inc- – or their tumor. It's incredibly expensive. Well, what they do is – is, um, yeah, it's in a beam, right? So it's like a pencil mm-hmm. going through your skull. So they just aim from a bunch of different angles so they, that all overlap on the tumor. So gotcha. the tumor yeah, gets a high dose, right. but everywhere else gets a lower dose, right? So we do the same, same thing same like with dose, gamma yeah. knife, which is using gamma mm-hmm. rays, so anything like that where we're sort of focusing any kind of beam of radioactivity at the tumor. And so a lot of people think that the reason that he didn't die is because it was so targeted, that most people, when they get these high doses of radiation, let's say they're in a nuclear zone. Yeah, if it was to your whole body, you're dead. It's to your whole body. It destroys all your organs, but this only passed through his brain. And yeah. it was really, really focused. So yeah, it destroyed a lot of the tissue 
on that pathway. But, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, people sustain really intense brain damage. People can lose a whole hemisphere of their brain and be okay. I mean, okay is a relative term. But. Alive, yeah. So he was lucky to exactly. survive is what it comes Yeah, he, first of all, he was lucky to survive. Second of all, he was lu- really lucky not to have any intense intellectual deficits from it. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. That's right, Steve. Last week I played this noisy. Yeah, and it goes on for a long time. So I wasn't here. I didn't hear it. Can I guess? It's a piano. Oh, my God. Carrie, your (laughs) intuition is amazing. Thank you. It's a little more complicated than that. Say what? (laughs) The winner from last week, Brian Gonkus actually guessed it, and he said, hey, gang. This week's Noisy is essentially music created by sensing the differences in tree rings. The tech was created by Bartholomew Trabek, and it it works similar to a turntable, but instead of a needle, there are sensors that that gather information about the gain of the wood, the, about the grain of the wood, I think he was saying, that yeah. is then fed into an algorithm that translates the information into specific notes on a piano. Um, I also found out, this is me now, um, I, reading more about this, this kind of you know technological uh, tree reading needle that they came up with each tree has a different kind of song like you know different like a spruce tree or an ash tree or an oak tree would have a different kind of music because of the differences in the way that the rings are set up and and the the the, you know the distances between the rings and whatnot well aren't they special Uh, they don't all sound really like (laughs) dark and weird like that one like some of them might be like a waltz yeah i do i think i think you know part of that might be by design but they're all being interpreted by the same piece of software. So yeah, they're you know, it's it's just an interesting thing. So this this noisy is is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful and it is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. You're gonna, you're gonna, Frank and beautiful. You're gonna like it. You're gonna like it, Kara. Hold on. All I'm going to tell you is there's a major clue in this noisy that can Mm -hmm. help you figure it out. Because, you know, on the surface, you're like, that's a woman singing, right? Okay. There's more to it than that. And that noisy was sent in again by Andrew Crotchmal, which means he has a very bad crotch. (laughs) Oh, no. Is that really how you Not nice. (laughs) See? K-R-O-C-H-M-A-L. You you tell me what I'm supposed to do with it. Crocmal. It's probably Crocmal. You said K-R-O-C-H. It's probably Crocmal. Crocmal. I'm looking forward to the day when you do a noisy and then the answer the next week is like, yeah, it's a piano. Yeah. I could do that. I'll I'll slip one of those in next year. It's a woman singing. Yeah. It's a tuba. Okay. (laughs) What do you want? No, it's not an electronic tuba. It's not a penguin playing a tuba. It's just a tuba. (laughs) It's just a tuba, damn it. So you know what to do, right? It's, uh, It's Christmas time coming up. Give me some Christmas-oriented noises. That would be fun if you can come up with anything fun like that. And if you have a guess for this week about that that woman singing, what the hell is it? What is she doing? You know, what did she have for dinner that night? I don't know. Just write me something this week. 
to Hanukkah oriented noisy. That's that's true. Anything yeah. to do with the holidays. Sweet. Or cool. cold weather. Email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Thank you, Jay. A couple of emails. Kara, this one is for you. This comes from Rachel mm. Obermiller, which reminds me of Oberfuhrer. Any of you guys watching The Man in the High Castle? The Oberfuhrer? Yeah. yeah, Oberfuhrer. <laughs> so Rachel Obermiller, she writes, the next time Kara is at Starbucks, she should order a iced half-calf grande with whip, skinny cinnamon dolce latte. Nice. When Kara orders it this way, the barista can process the information more easily without having to reorganize it in their head. So that's because she writes earlier in the email that Starbucks uh, baristas are taught how to chunk the data so that they can remember a long, complicated order. And so they mm-hmm. always put it in the same order in their head. Ah, wow. It's, it goes – the breakdown is hot slash iced, then decaf slash shots, then size, syrup, milk, other drink. So you should try to give it in that order. Iced half cap grande with whip, skinny cinnamon dolce latte. And that but way But it's weird because why would they mm, okay. I get I get that's what they do. Kara, it's clearly that's what the taxonomy of Starbucks, okay? Yeah, you I have get to that buy that's into what their they do. Philosophy I, there. I yeah. get that that makes it easier for them, but they should have done it in the order that people usually order. You would never say with whip before you say all those other things. You always mm. say with whip at the end. You should send with them a strongly worded letter. But think about it. Steve. She's right because you always say, "I'll take a chocolate ice cream with a cherry on top." You don't go say, "I'll take a cherry on top." Chocolate ice cream. With a chocolate ice cream. But you Sundays know what? are it's, bottom up, not top down. But yeah. it also sounds like they're they're chunking the with whip in with the milk. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Which is interesting because you would say, "I want a decaf non-fat latte." You wouldn't say, "I want a non-fat decaf." Well, you could say it either way. So what? They're yeah, because I would do it. Definitely do it like size coffee type. Stuff that you put in the coffee and then flare on top of the coffee. That's how I would do it. Yeah, but also this is only my order at Starbucks because American coffee is swill and yeah. you have to put a bunch of stuff in it to make it taste good. Not what, Every, I'm, not what I'm brewing at home. Not what you're brewing at home. That's true. Every time I travel abroad. I know. I, I just come back and I miss like European coffee. So, I mean, my order the whole time I was in in Hong Kong and Australia and New Zealand was just – coffee. Well, a flat white. <laughs> flat white with two sugars. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's so easy. That's easy. Yeah. It's <laughs> easy. All right. <laughs> so definitely the uh, the segment from last week that got the most feedback was the net neutrality discussion. Because, I thought you were going to say disaster. <laughs> yeah. It was, well, listen. So we, we did a very, very superficial primer on the topic last week. And uh, we got a lot of feedback, which, you know, a lot of it was good. A lot of the feedback was exactly what you shouldn't do when you write us an email, which is basically just insult us and give us no information. You know, like if you're going to come <laughs> one, up. One guy actually wrote in and said, listen, I am not going to discuss this with you. There will be no back and forth, right, Steve? Like, yeah. Just, <laughs> shut down all conversations. You're wrong, and no that's dialogue. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I just you know, whatever. I don't want to get too far off on this tangent, but don't the email shouldn't just be I don't like your opinion, so shut up, right? I mean, yeah. give us a little bit of credit. 
So I get that this was more of a political topic than we typically discuss. But remember, we're a science and skepticism show. We talk about critical thinking, and it's good to apply your critical thinking to areas that are not just scientific. And the reason why we thought this was an interesting topic, because not only is it in the news, but we, you know, we are an internet company. And this is something that, you know, we obviously care very much about. And it's, and the topic is interesting. And I think this is something good to wrap our head around. So, and consumer protection as well. Steve, that's the reason why I pushed hard to talk about this on the show was because in my heart, I'm, I'm trying to help people yeah, from but, a consumer protection standpoint. Jay and I did a much deeper dive on this issue. I even had a, an email consultation with a, with a legal expert on this, on this topic. And to try to wrap my head around it, at a deeper level. And, and so I have moderated my position on it based upon all of this. But let, let me give you an explanation of how I currently understand. So I, I actually did try to get somebody on the show. And then we may still do that in the future, because I think it's good just sometimes to pick a topic. And, and you could derive a lot of generic scholarship lessons and skeptical critical thinking lessons about almost any topic if you do a deep enough dive. And I think this is a good one to do it on. Pretty much all, a lot, I would say a lot of the, the discussion happening in the media is pretty one-sided and superficial. And it took me a while to sort of get down to what I thought were the fundamentals. And part of it also is that um, Pi, you know, the FCC director, is a horrible communicator. I have to say, this guy just published an editorial in the New York Times, and it was terrible. I mean, he's not doing himself any favors, this guy. But one thing I try to do is to try to understand each side as best as possible. What's the best case you could make for each side? The charity principle. Yeah, the, the char- absolutely. So here, here it is. So the issue is, should, you know, uh, uh, the issue of net neutrality is should the providers of broadband be able to, to either, th- you know, throttle or, or increase the amount of throughput that different services get, or should they be completely neutral to content, right? Um, and, and the, the second issue is how do we achieve those ends if you think that that's a reasonable goal? So while the discussion is focused on net neutrality, what I ultimately discovered, and I knew that there were other layers to it, but now I think I understand more fully that the other layers are it, that the net neutrality isn't really even the issue really. It's more about how are we going to achieve it. So there was an, an NPR issue with, with Ajit Pai who, where I thought he was being more reasonable. And he even said, listen, I'm all for having a, a level playing field on the ISPs. The real issue is that they, did, they just don't think that the decision that was made under the FCC two years ago in 2015 is the way to do it. Um, so let me break By it down. By invoking a very old Yeah. Rule. So this is, this is essentially a, a, a very brief history of this, is that you know, when AT&T was a monopoly, um, this is when the first principles of, of, new, of the common carrier sort of concept came into being. Uh, and the, the, the government basically decided, the FCC, that um, these other services were coming into play. Like people wanted to do things on top of or over the phone network. And AT&T didn't want them to do it. They wanted to have total control. And the FCC said, no, you can't have total control. You're a common carrier. This is a utility. You provide the, the infrastructure, but if other people want to use the infrastructure to, to innovate services, you have to allow that to happen. So that was true. That, that created this idea that the phone service was a common carrier or a utility. 
Okay, so then we fast forward to the internet. The, the same, of course, was true with dial-up service. But then when broadband came into being, broadband uses a different infrastructure. It's not on top of the phone infrastructure. It's its own infrastructure. And right. so then the, the idea came, okay, well, if, pe- if people want to have services on top of the broadband infrastructure, they should be able to do that too. And, and so around 2005, the FCC developed ver- this concept of net neutrality essentially applying the same principle as was applied to the phone service. And they did it through regulations, but those regulations were getting legally challenged. And again, without getting into all the legal details, that kind of came to a head in 2015. And the solution to the legal challenges to the FCC's authority to enforce its net neutrality rules was to reclassify broadband as a common carrier, as a utility, just like the phone lines. And that's the thing that that Pi and that a lot of other people think, uh, and the telecoms themselves don't like. Because not only did that give the FCC the authority to enforce all the net neutrality rules, it also gives them a lot of other authority too. Like they could theoretically you know, to set prices, you know, for um, broadband access, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we are now. So that's what Pi wants to roll back. He wants to roll back that decision in 2015 that made the broadband uh, providers a common carrier or a utility, saying that that's heavy-handed. It, it assumes that there's going to be lots of problems, and then it uses a really draconian, heavy-handed mechanism applied broadly across the entire industry. Um, and he thinks that that is stifling innovation in the broadband sector itself. And, you know, this, he thinks that there would be investment is down 5.6%, which he blames on that rule. And he thinks it would be bigger and there'd be, we'd have more great broadband if we got rid of it. All right. So on, he's a free market guy. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Oh, yeah. On yeah. the yeah. other side are um, the content providers, but also a movement you know, people who want broadband to be a to be nationalized, right? Not even to be yeah, like a human. Like, there's a lot of people who think broadband now represents access to information, and that's a basic human right. Yeah. So, but which is fine. But the question is, how best to do that? So, there definitely is a lot of, I think, market ideology here. There's the people who want to nationalize it on one side, and people who want it to be a free market on the other side. But then there's also a fight between the FCC and the FTC, the, you know, who should, who should be the one to regulate it. Right. The, the, and there are those who like Pi thinks, so just let the FTC deal with any actual violations of, uh, of the free market, right? If anyone actually does anything anti-competitive, the FTC has the authority to deal with that. We don't need to prevent them from even having the ability to do it in the first place. So that's- Oh yeah, because we have a great track record of that in America. Well, you know, actually that's, that's a complicated issue. And there are those who think that we do have a good track record and the FTC does Mm -hmm. do its job very well in terms of anti-competitiveness. But any, but that's, that's a a thorny debate. I don't want to get into it. That's a big discussion. Yeah. 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 But let's just say that that's their position. That's Pi's position. That that is the free market position, but the the content providers say, okay, but remember, Comcast wanted to throttle Skype because it was competing mm-hmm. with their phone service, and they tried, mm-hmm. and other carriers tried to to throttle Vonage and tried to throttle Netflix. They actually mm-hmm. tried to do these things in the past. That's when this 
wasn't that the big 2015? I mean, all this other stuff was happening, but wasn't that one of the one of the reasons that this big 2015 conversation was coming to a yeah, head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was the push for the net neutrality yeah. rules, and and then it was just then it was just like this legal debate about well, does the FTC, FCC even have yeah. the authority to do that? So anyway, so Pi's answer to that was those are isolated incidents. I don't find that very convincing, personally. No, that's they're just going to keep happening. But they're maybe they're isolated because they they we didn't let them happen because they got exactly, slapped on the wrist. Exactly, they're isolated because we have regulation. <laughs> yeah, but the, again, the question is, what should the regulation be? So and who should regulate? And who should regulate? And who should regulate? A lot of yeah. a lot of small government or anti-government. So Pi, yeah, Pi thinks you have transparency rules for the broadband and you let the FTC deal with any anti-competitive throttling. You know, if they try to squelch their competition in an anti-competitive way, we can deal with that on a case-by-case basis. That's his approach. And then, but mm-hmm. the, the content providers like, oh no, you know, we, they've tried to do it. They're going to try to do it. We can't, and they're just going to use this to just wring as much money out of us and consumers mm-hmm. as possible. That's and the thing. There's no consumer, there's no consumer protection argument from Pi. At all, right? Right. He thinks that the free market was Other sorted than the out. FTC yeah, yeah. He did. He did. Well, yeah. His, yeah, but no. The his FTC consumer is not about protection. Consumer protection. His consumer it's protection about, is transparency and the FTC. That's his consumer protection. But but the FTC's role in this is basically just busting monopoly. So yeah, I guess downstream anti-competitive behavior. Would, exactly. Right. Not but that's not monopolies, consumer but protection. It, but it is. That's not it is what regu- protection. That's one it. aspect. But that's not what all regulation is. Oh, you're for. right. You're right. But but it is. But that's the ultimate purpose, though, is to protect consumers, but also other companies mm-hmm. from un- from yeah. But there are a lot unfair. of other ways to abuse consumers. You're even absolutely if that's in right. Place. So the, that's, yeah. this is where we, so this is my bottom line lesson is this is horrifically complicated, and <laughs> it is le- legally complicated. It's complicated in terms of the history and the regulation. And the bottom line is nobody really knows what's going to happen, and so that yeah. people can predict disaster one way or the other without. Fear of contradiction if if they're if they get their way, but here's the interesting thing, and I and I I run I ran this by my expert, and and there's some interesting articles about this that actually everyone's wrong, and this represents <laughs> the two ex- it's the two extremes uh, because the 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 situation is broken to begin with, and mm-hmm. the real solution, which I kind of alluded to last week, but the real solution is that Congress needs to get off its ass yes. and pass legislation. Thank you. That yeah. this this needs to have this needs not to have a Congress, legislative yeah. solution, not a legal right. regulatory solution. So the FT, FCC right. and the FTC Ultimately, are fighting right. it out within their purview, but they don't really have the ability to fix it. Only Congress. Well, I'm does. afraid. Of what this Congress is exactly, legal. but well, Congress right, not, that would right, be this Congress has no interest <laughs> in, so, yeah, in doing no, that. And but the, it's not just about them being inactive. I'm afraid that if they were active, I wouldn't like to see that political. Right. What action. we would what need, want. what we would want, is a calm, evidence based, yes, you know, <laughs> bipartisan look at this issue to pass rational and then monitored <laughs> evidence-based legislation that looked after the consumer. That's what and we would want. Yeah. to the federal Congress to do that, but that yeah, the they don't want to do that, and, and yeah, none power. of us think that they can do it. 
but they yeah. should. In a perfect world, that they would should. be the fix. But absent that, we really have no perfect solution. And then they're arguing at the two extremes about how to, that, you know, and then that comes down to ideology and it's a mess. So that's no, kind of where we are. Someone's got to take up the cause. Then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a politician needs to make it sort of their, their banner to fly and, and start working <laughs> yeah. on it. Yeah. There's just so many other it. fires that people are trying to put out right, right. now. It's hard because, you know, a, a, a topic like this is inextricably linked to political ideology. But that said, I think that we've been struggling as a podcast lately when, you know, we had a sort of ethos yeah. that was we don't touch politics, but more and more, if we don't touch politics at all, and we only talk about science as it doesn't encroach on politics, there are massive aspects of science in the news that we're preventing ourselves from talking about. But we don't, though, because so like, you know, for me, and again, I'm the ultimate editorial filter for the show, it, there mm-hmm. just has to be either a scientific or a critical thinking angle. Component to That's it. That's it. Yeah, there does. And, and, and you know, if I think that there's enough to talk about where there's at least some kind of justification from a critical thinking point of view, then fine. I'm okay with that. It just can't be – I don't, don't want to get bogged down in our personal – ideological beliefs because that's not what the show's about but what's frustrating is that we'll get emails from listeners who are like you're getting political you shouldn't even be talking about this topic and it's like if we divorce ourselves from any topic that could have a political component to it then all of a sudden we can't talk about anything anymore because science is politicized in this country that's what i was saying is they say that when they disagree with us no one says that when they no one says i agree with you but you shouldn't talk about this it's always i disagree (laughs) with you shut up that and yeah right but the thing is and my usual response is tell me what i got factually wrong what i omitted or what i misinterpreted please and, and i hate when they say things like oh i'm never going to change your mind really really is that what you got after 13 years of the sgu is yeah, you're immune right. to having our minds changed i mean come on <laughs> give us something wow. meaty give us some information we will cope we will do it take a second bite at that apple like we just did this week you we know? do it every week I there's know. always like your questions and emails the and then we talk about things we learn Please, from give last us a week little bit of credit but anyway <laughs> so, I, look i i honestly don't like we say this all the time we don't care what the truth is we just want to know what it is and this topic is not a clear cut yes or no truth because there is a lot of interpretation and you know whose information are you going to believe the bottom line for me in reporting this was largely because i was very much worried about these companies take continuing to take advantage yeah. of consumers yeah, yeah. yeah. well that's and, the other think, the other angle here is that a lot of broadband providers have Monopolies, you know, where the, you mm-hmm. know, even though they might meet the, they might not meet the technical definition. Like for me, there's only one company I can get broadband from. That's it. That's so as a consumer, that's all I know. I have Comcast. That's the only one in my area that's going to provide broadband for me. And it's the same thing with other utilities. And so electric, giving it's, yeah, them, giving them more power just doesn't feel right to me as a consumer because I don't have somebody else I can go to if I don't like what they do. Mm-hmm. And again, I haven't heard any good answer to that. Nobody has a good response yeah. to that. And the whole point of trying to to prevent these kinds of monopolies from happening is, yes, consumer protection. That is the point. But in this case, I think there is a strong scientific angle and a strong re- – and I wasn't here last week, but a strong scientific reason to have this conversation because we are actually talking about the gateway to information. To information, absolutely. Yeah, and if people are prevented from being able to access information because it's exorbitantly expensive to be able to do so – what we're seeing are social 
racial political divide. Rich people are able to look things up and poor people aren't. And yeah. that's problematic. But, you know, I, really I, I'm willing to accept – I'm willing yeah. to accept the premise. I'm not as – I'm not as uh, – Hard on that as Kara is. Yeah, but I'm willing to accept the premise that heavy-handed net neutrality regulations, like the common carrier rule, I get, I, I could see that. Okay, maybe that's too mm-hmm. much. That that might impede broadband services. And I, I also accept the premise that you know, if the broadband providers have carte blanche, that that could inhibit content providers. I'm a consumer. I want freaking both. I want better exactly. broadband and I want an open highway for my content. I want both. Yeah. I'm sure everyone wants both. So whatever regulatory scheme gives us both without raking us over the coals money-wise, that's what I'm in, that's my only dog in this hunt, right? That's I mean, all isn't, I care isn't about. that isn't that sort of the bottom line as usual? Money yeah. is well, what, what yes people can no. realistically afford and what they should be be able to have yeah. access to for a reasonable price. Because I'm coming from this from somebody who was just hanging out in China where I couldn't use Google. And I know that that's an extreme example because that's heavy-handed governmental control. But that is basically how we we enact those kinds of social controls in our country is through monetary restraint. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we are a free nation. Like our government is not going to block access to Google in America anytime soon. But if we're put in a position where we can't access certain types of content because it's exorbitantly expensive the the end result is the same and that's the part i'm concerned about although but what's interesting is in his in his uh, editorial pi characterized mm-hmm. that position as hysteria and then yeah. went on to say that if that if we keep these rules in place that will lead to a china like government censorship of the internet then he went hysterical in the he opposite the direction <laughs> yeah, he, he totally slingshot the other yeah, way yeah i, I really really was not impressed with his editorial i think he what needs, aboutism yeah, yeah it was it was all about that's that's the whole article was distractions irrelevant mm-hmm. distractions from the actual issue very unimpressed with that i was more impressed with his interview on npr but they were controlling the interview then they right. were asking him questions and he he was being reasonable. He's like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a, we're all we want a level playing field. This just isn't the way to do it." Okay, now I get your yeah, position. Yeah, that's a very reasonable position. But his own yeah. article's terrible. All right. <laughs> But in essence, this is the point of the SGU, right? The point of this show is that we want to provide evidence-based information. And so yeah, some t- things are going to be in the weeds with all of these other considerations. Um, and yeah, sometimes we might be in the weeds a little bit yeah. too. And of course, when we misstep that way, we're going to go back and we're going to try to figure out how to get all of those weeds away so that we can just look at the evidence. Yeah. And with something like this, it's weedier than usual. Absolutely. Yeah. Very. This is very, which is why I wanted to do a second swipe at this, because I thought it was a good way to model like how we wrap our minds around things. First of all, you got to take a deep breath, back up, check your own ideology and say, okay, Okay, what, exactly. are the, what are the two sides really saying here? What are their best points? Let me try to really understand it. And I, I got a lot closer, I think, trying to do that. I still I, – there's also – the other thing I appreciate is it's more complicated than I thought. And there is a technical legal layer here that none of us understand. That's like the real fight that lawyers are having is so technical we have no idea. I, I had like a lawyer trying to explain it to me. It just made it worse and worse because oh. it just yeah. kept getting so yeah, far into the technical – Jay and I were like, OK, I understand What's less. Happening? I'm more confused now than I was. It's like it's like having week. it's like having a physicist try to explain the math to you. It's like don't give me them just just try to give me concepts that I can appreciate. I think <laughs> yeah. I think the, the one thing I I also think I appreciate is that the pro net neutrality people have been doing a better job of packaging their message for the public and the 
uh, the pro-free market side, the pie side, have been doing a horrible job of packaging their message to the public. I think that's a, there's a fundamental asymmetry there, but we have to get beyond that. We have to get beyond the marketing to what the actual arguments are. And anyway, that's the best summary I could do for now. But if, if I'll be willing to go further if people have actual substantive meaty responses to give mm-hmm. us. An important point to make also, this is a great topic to check your own biases against, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. But here's the, the the final thing is just this is what's going to happen. Pi is going to repeal the common carrier rule from 2015. Yeah. We we are going to be basically at the mercy of the FTC at that point. And the only real way out of this mess is if Congress gets their act together, which seems unlikely. So that's where we are. And so maybe we need to start communicating with our senators and representatives and start to build a political – the political will to address this in a bipartisan way. That's what I think has to Uh. happen. It's going to be know. the Wild West. <laughs> in the meantime, right, yeah. We'll see. We'll That's see. That's the problem. It's like, the thing is, luck. hey, the thing it's is, like, if one side is correct, we'll, we will see, you know, and then That's yeah. right. we're about to find out. Mm-hmm. It's just yep. really frustrating, this idea of like something's broken, so let's unbreak it before we have a solution for it. Right, it, right. It, it's just like, it's not very, it's short-sighted. And it, but it's worrisome. But to it me. totally depends on your That's perspective. How our system, they see, they, they see works it this, this way, though. But the thing yeah. is, the other side sees it that way, too. They think, oh, if you, it wasn't, no one actually abused this yet. You're, you're fixing a problem that didn't exist that you thought might one day possibly exist. And you, you basically shackled an entire industry and kept them from innovating. That's what yeah. they really think. I just don't know that many free market economists who believe that there should be no regulation. So, all right, all right. That's, I'm glad you brought that yeah. up because I do have a, another article and we will uh-huh. make this the last thing. This is a survey of economists about what they think about net neutrality. Interesting. So this is the, uh, this is just economists now. Who run the political spectrum. 4%, yeah. So 4% yeah. strongly agree with net neutrality. 40% agree. And only 11% disagree. 40% sorry, 40% agree, agree with other, what? Where's the other 40%? Yeah. Sorry, and sorry. Uncertain. Can you just clarify 36% what you mean? uncertain. So it was. Yeah, 36% uncertain. Uncertain, yeah. So, so basically 44% either agree or strongly agree. 11% disagreed and 36% were uncertain. But then they also yeah. weighted it by the experts' confidence. And it wasn't that different. It was, it was 45% agree. Or strongly agree, forty-one percent uncertain, fourteen percent disagree. So not too different. So basically, it's evenly distributed among agree and uncertain, and then you know eleven to fourteen percent disagree. So it is weighted more towards agree, but it's complicated. And most and it's uncharted and a lot are in yeah. So in the weighted by experts' confidence graph, the biggest. Category was uncertain at forty one percent. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I, I do I think, think it's telling, telling yeah. that the that it's a very small percentage of people who just straight up disagree. Yes, I agree. And that, I think that this reinforces what I'm what I say a lot, and, and I see it a lot, and I read it a lot. That like most legitimate economists who are not like activist economists believe that the free market requires regulation yeah, that's yeah. fundamental to Some the level. idea right. of a free yes. market but yeah, no one even no one here is saying no regulation right. even Pi's not saying no regulation he just doesn't think the common carrier rule is the right regulation he he want he he would want to go back to the 
net neutrality rules that existed prior to that. The problem so is they were the in, FTC. They were in legal. No, no. It, with through the FCC, the problem is they were oh, in legal okay. limbo, and because of that, they probably will just go away and will leave it in the hands of the FTC. Yeah. But so yeah, so that's but but that's still regulation. A government regulatory the FTC, yeah, there's still there. a regulatory yeah. agency that will look out apparently for our interests. It's just a, you know, again, it's just it's, it's a legally complicated. Just how effective will yeah. they be? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. we'll we will follow this issue. It's fascinating. It's complicated, and we'll try to try to back way up and try to be as neutral journalists as we can when it comes to this. Um, and maybe we'll bring an expert on at some point if I think we, there's more depth to go here. We'll see. We'll see what the reaction is to this round. And, and but in and the meantime, I wish us all luck because when yeah. they open <laughs> yeah, up that right. floodgate, good luck. Uh, yeah, exactly. The big, the we'll big scare here is that you know your your internet provider is going to say, hey, uh, you know, hey, do you want to have access to Netflix? It's forty dollars more a month. Well, let's just exactly. we'll all just have to keep a close eye on our internet providers, right? That, I think that's the bottom line for now. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Kara, you missed two sweeps in a row. Oh no way! I don't know if that would have happened if I had been there. Ooh. Oh, damn. Ooh. Just kidding. <laughs> it's, it still would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> So you dodge those two bullets. Yeah. So we'll Ooh, that, yeah, that's going to positively affect my exactly. score. We will see year. how you do this week, though. So okay, this one ready? counts as three for you. Yeah, right. you know I'm going to have to go first now. Damn it. <laughs> you know it. All right. <laughs> you here know we, it. <laughs> here we go. Item number one. Researchers find that viruses share some of their genes across all kingdoms of life, not just the ones they infect. Item number two, a new study finds that playing 3D video games increased gray matter in the memory-forming parts of the brain. And item number three, researchers have demonstrated a new technique for 3D printing entire organs made out of a host's own stem cells. Kara, go first. These all sound legitimate. And Okay. Researchers find that viruses share some of their genes across all kingdoms of life, not just the ones they infect. I mean, to me, this is like the same thing as trophic factors, right? Like we all get our energy from the sun because we eat things that get their energy from the sun or the things that we eat, eat things that get their energy from the sun. And I could see the same thing uh, or a similar process happening ecologically with viruses. So they might infect one organism, but then that organism has some sort of interaction with another organism and those viral particles are either consumed by being eaten or they're spread through other like disease vectors or whatever. So I could definitely see this one being legitimate. A new study finds that playing 3D video games increase gray matter in the memory forming parts of the brain. Well, that would mean that there's new cells being produced if there's an increase in gray matter. So I don't know how I feel about that one. I could see them increasing white matter, um, like maybe improving myelination or making new connections between cells. Although the memory forming parts of the brain, we do actually make new neurons, um, at least in the hippocampus. So there is a chance that we would have more gray matter there. And I could definitely see that playing video games would improve that. Researchers have demonstrated a new technique for 3D printing entire organs made out of host's own stem cells. The 3D printing organs thing has been difficult. We're able to do it, though. We already can 3D print, like, lungs and things like that, but usually, like, rat lungs, which are tiny, and they're all clear and weird and sickly looking. 
also i feel like 3d printing is like this term that doesn't really refer to what we're doing when we when we make these organs but it just means additive manufacturing yeah it's just additive so i'm gonna go with number two i'm gonna say that it was actually white matter not gray matter okay bob oof that's a nice technical assessment of all three of those um Yeah, the viruses and the gene sharing across all kingdoms. Um, yeah, that, that one makes sense to me. So I'm going to focus on the other two as well. My big problem is the 3D printing of entire organs. I, I really hope that's true. Really do. But it's so, for the complex organs, it's so, it's so hard. There's so many different types of cells. And then, then you've got to, you know, you've got to have circulation going through it. There's so much going on to think that they can 3D print it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that one. That just seems like the much much less likely to me. So I'll say 3D printing is fiction. Okay, Evan. So is it 3D video games increasing gray matter? Ah, damn, in the memory forming parts of the brain. Maybe it's in other parts of the brain. I don't know. Uh, as opposed to the memory for- forming parts of the brain. So I'm Kara. I'm just gonna go ahead with you and say that that one's the fiction. And Jay. Yeah, I'm agreeing. I I, I I'm I'm. A hundred percent sure that we cannot 3D print entire organs. When you're saying entire organs, it, it sounds like any organ they want, whatever, just by using the stem cells. I bet you that they 3D printed something about one of a human's organs, but this is definitely an extrapolation. So three is the fiction. All right. We have an even split, but you all agree on the first one. So we'll start there. Researchers yeah, find crap. that viruses share some of their genes across <laughs> all kingdoms of life, not just the ones they infect. Will this be a third sweep in a row? Nope. This one is science. Oh, uh, no sweep. Uh, no sweep. That's a good so yeah, Kara yeah, pretty much stated it that um, viruses, like there may be viruses that infect archaea or just bacteria or just eukaryotes or whatever, but they interact with horizontal gene transfer with other parts of the ecosystem. And then over the last, whatever, 500 million years, there are certain genes that pretty much got everywhere. But also, the the study was looking at protein folds, not the gene sequences themselves, because they're more highly conserved. So a protein fold is unique, right? It, it does one specific function, it folds into a specific shape, and it represents underlying, obviously, DNA sequence. But it, um, you can have a lot of mutations to that sequence without changing the fold itself. So it's more stable over evolutionary time. And so they thought that would be a better way of looking at the distribution of these genes through the proteins that they make across vast spaces of, of, of uh, evolutionary time and space, right? Across different kingdoms. So they found some protein folds that were ubiquitous to all kingdoms of life. But then they found others that only existed within the virus and the kingdom that that virus infects. So some were restricted and some were ubiquitous. This doesn't necessarily mean that the genes literally moved from a virus to every other kingdom. It could be more that it's just conserved from really, you know, deep common ancestors, you know. That these are just really highly conserved, fundamental, you know, basic proteins, essentially. But it's a, it's interesting to look at the big overall patterns of like the entire kingdoms of life, right? All of life on Earth, and just see how things are spread out. And also, it's very interesting to note, and I think a lot of people aren't aware of this, of how many vi- how much of a role viruses play in spreading genes around the kingdoms of life. 
It's huge. There's a lot of viral genes in human huge. DNA. Yeah, it's huge. Um, mm-hmm. Both active and inactive. You know, mostly inactive. You know, they get stuck in there. You get the inactive little viral particle, a viral inclusion, as they're called. But sometimes that can provide the raw material for later uh, active genes that can get reactivated. Um, Isn't that also how we know sometimes, like evolutionary divergence, oh, yeah. is by looking at the viral oh, yeah. uh, mutations? Absolutely. If a virus got included into like a human chimpanzee common ancestor, then both chimps and humans will have the same viral inclusion, right? So that's that's mm-hmm. one way to know, you know, how old those viral inclusions are. And also that pattern is an evolutionary pattern, right? There'll be a nestled pattern of viral inclusions in different species the same way there are a nestled pattern of relatedness in other genetic aspects as well. So it is another independent line of evidence, genetic line of evidence for common ancestry. Okay, let's move on to number two. A new study finds that playing 3D video games increased gray matter in the memory-forming parts of the brain. Kara and Evan think this one is the fiction. Bob and Jay think this one is science. And Not this, confident. This one <laughs> is science. Your non-confidence ah. is justified, Kara. Okay, good. Bob. <laughs> But the consolation, Kara, is that your analysis is pretty spot on, though. Oh, good. <laughs> because it is the hippocampus, and the hippocampus makes sense because the hippocampus can recruit new stem cells and make new, new, add new neurons. Mm. It can add gray matter. It is very plastic part mm. of the brain. So what they did was they compared playing a 3D video game specifically Super Mario 64. And this is in older adults too. This is a 55 to 75. They compared that with learning how to play the piano on a computer. And then they compared that to nothing, right? To a sort of a no intervention control. And then what they found was that only the, the Super Mario 64 group had it showed an increase in the volume of the gray matter of the hippocampus the video game and the piano lesson groups had other increases in the cerebellum, which makes sense, uh, and yeah, someplace else, and also the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, planning mm. and control, decision making, etc. But not the hippocampus. Only the three D video game had the hippocampus. And of but course, the three D video game also had changes in those other areas. Yes, right? all three. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I did some other, you know, background research just to see like what other studies were published about this. And it's interesting. For example, there is evidence that if, when older adults play 3D video games, that it actually may stave off dementia. It actually reduces their risk of dementia, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. And then, and all of the studies show that it increases some, you know, function, some cortical, you know, cognitive function, some, you know, and some measure of gray matter. So yeah. it, it is obviously doing stuff is better than not doing stuff. And the stuff that you do will get better, you know, but it, would, it is good to know that even older adults, you know, the 55 to 75 age, you still can improve your brain function by doing stuff. Um, and video games are really, really helpful, especially apparently 3D video games because they really engage us on multiple levels. And that's the other sort of theme to the research that I was looking at is engaging people on multiple levels at the same time seems to be really critical. So games mm. like the Wii that were physical and cognitive were much better than physical activity alone. So if oh, you're making, pe- if you're making yeah. people physically move, 
and engage decision making, you know, 3D processing, visual processing, whatever, that really stimulates the brain. And I guess at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do is stimulate the brain enough that it recruits stem cells and makes and keeps those connections alive. And it really does help. It staves off dementia. It, it improves function. It, you know, keeps people sharper longer. So yeah, it seems like VR and AR are going to be really important. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this all justifies my Fallout Four addiction. So I'm good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. That means that researchers have demonstrated a new technique for 3D printing entire organs made out of a host's own stem cells is the fiction. That is a little uh, bit, little bit too much. But it must but be based on something. It's, yeah, it's, ba- it's, course, it's based on something. What, it, what it's based on is 3D printing lifelike artificial organ models and so uh, okay. not actual functional organ yeah <laughs> organs so and what they do this for so they basically and they 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 started with the low hanging fruit pun intended they did the prostate testicles yeah. uh, close enough they did the prostate because oh so, <laughs> awesome. it was you know a small simple organ but they 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 basically created the technique for using the the, the proper materials to duplicate the physical properties of the organ. And then they also embed sensors. And the purpose for this is to train surgeons, but not just, you know, training surgeons, but also so that surgeons can practice doing surgery, a complicated surgery on a patient before they do the actual surgery. So for example, we could do an MRI scan of your abdomen and then do a 3D print your organs and then the surgeon can practice doing surgery on synthetic organs of you, including your tumor or whatever the hell is wrong with you, before they operate on you for real. That's cool because it gives you something like tactile feedback. Yeah, like they're using it has the I si- did a s- it has the same properties in terms of the response to the scalpel, response yeah. to being sewed. So it has the same physical properties as the actual organs. Because that's not that's what's missing from surgical theater, yeah. which which surgeons are using right now. Which actually, there's a plus to surgical theater, which means in their VR headset they can fly behind the tumor and see its connections and things that you can't do in surgery. Yeah. Like you can't get a 360 view, but you then combine that with a physical tactile feedback. That's awesome. Yeah, right. So we'll see. This still has to be developed, but it's a very interesting uh, idea. And uh, it sounds like a cool application of 3D technology. They made a good step forward. So, you know, it might lead to better, safer, you know, surgeries in the future. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, right. I just uh, want to congratulate Bob. Yeah. Good job, Bob and Jay. <laughs> good job, Bob and Jay. Woo-hoo. Welcome um, back, Kara. Thanks. But ended, ended, my, <laughs> ended my sweeps. <laughs> hey. Hey. Oh, we ended the sweep, on. all right? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Evan, do you have a quote for this week? I do. The mind tells me one thing, and the heart tells me something else, but the facts are there. Robert Oswald, brother of Lee Harvey Oswald, Mm. who died Mm. just last week. Uh, I was living out his life in uh, Oklahoma with his family. And it's a fascinating sentiment, I think, because here you are. In this unique position of being one of the closest relatives to one of the world's most famous assassins, and you have so much reason in your heart to want to believe that it's a conspiracy theory, there's some other explanation going on here so close to you, yet through all that, he's still able to see the facts as they are and 
have to cope with that. Cope with it, deal with it, live with it for his entire life. So yeah. it's really a courageous statement if you think about it. Yeah, it's true. And in, in the context, too, it really adds a, obviously another layer to it. It also, I think, really supports this, um, I don't know, argument against conspiratorial thinking here. Like his own brother looks at the evidence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If anybody has an investment as to it, exactly. as to him not being the lone shooter, it would be mm-hmm. the brother. Yep. Certainly yeah. be one of those people. Yeah. What a terrible, yeah. terrible cloud to have to live your whole life under. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you think about that with all the ma- – I mean, mass shootings happen so often in this country. Every time a mass shooting happens – somebody is connected to that shooter at an emotional level. They have a mother, they have a brother, they have a sister. Yeah. And they're like, where did I go wrong? Or like, how did I not know? Like, think about all the people struggling with that. Well, hey, ending on a positive note. Yeah. You could give a an SGU membership to a friend or family member for the holidays. Yeah. As a gift. Yeah, that's true. We have gift memberships. Very easy to do. You go to theskepticusguide.org, click the link to become a member. And everything you need to know is there. If you have any problems, you can email Steve at three in the morning. <laughs> Doesn't matter when you email because it's virtual time. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like a phone, Jack. It's not the joke, Steve. It's not the joke. Dial this number. Yeah. <laughs> and don't forget that uh, you to send us your votes for the best and worst of 2017. Uh, we will be uh, live streaming our end of the year wrap up show on Friday, December 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern time from our Facebook page. And that'll be our podcast, of course, for the end of the year show. So send us your votes, make your voice heard. And also, you know what? Spread the word about the SGU. If there's someone in your life who doesn't know about the SGU, talk to them about it. Maybe they'll want to listen. Maybe uh, you'll give the gift of skepticism through the SGU. Yeah. And you could give the gift of a cool Skeptics Guide t-shirt or some other cool Skeptics Guide stuff if you visit our online store. Yeah. T-Public at Mm -hmm. the Skeptics Guide. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. You got it. Thanks, Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptics Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.